Romans uh, chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning, verses uh, 9 through 20. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray uh, this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we do just come into your presence and we ask uh, that you would attend to the speaking of preaching of your word. That your Holy Spirit would be present through the word of God. That you would instruct us and that you would convict us and you would correct us. And most of all, we ask that we would uh, be driven to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our only hope, our only source of righteousness. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work on our behalf. May you be, be honored and glorified today, we pray in your name. Amen. I don't know if you've you've ever gone to the doctor and, and he has to tell you something and and you look at him maybe and you just say to the doctor, OK, I don't know what's going on, but but give it to me straight. Or maybe it happened with one of your kids or maybe you uh, had your parents had to come and tell you some sort of, of difficult news. And you just said to them, well, I'm just going to lay it out to you straight. I'm just going to talk plainly to you. I can't sugarcoat this. We're in a passage today where Paul just gives it to us straight. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to the sinfulness of of each one of us. And so I'm going to come to you this morning and I'm just going to give it to you straight. Uh, there's no easy and, and nice way, in a sense, to, to sugarcoat this. The situation as, as who we are without Jesus Christ is bad. It's, it's worse than bad. And, and we do no favors to ourselves when we try to soften it up. Sometimes we just have to take our lumps, so to speak, so that we might get the right medicine. And see, what we think about sin and how we think about how bad it is and how evil it is, is is going to be uh, proportional then to who we think Jesus is and what we think Jesus has done. If if sin is really bad, then Jesus is really good. Conversely, if we if we lower what sin really means, the, the unintended effect is we're going to lower how great we think Christ is. 
and what Christ had to do. And so the more we understand the Bible's portrayal of sin, just how much sin is, how bad it is, how evil it is, the intensity of it, the pervasity of it in our lives, the more and more we are going to need to see Jesus as a greater and mightier Savior. If my sin is little and something that I can largely handle on my own, then I only need a Jesus who can help me out a little bit where I can't do it. If my sin is pervasive and entirely something that I cannot fight because I am enslaved to it, then I need a Jesus who comes and really saves me. So we're going to talk about sin quite a bit today, but I want you to keep that idea in mind that that the more I think biblically about sin, the more honor I will begin to bring to Jesus, the more glory he will get as I understand what I need from him and just how dependent upon him I actually am. And so our main point this morning is that apart from Jesus Christ, we are all dead in sin. Now, I'm not going to be talking primarily about who we are in Jesus Christ today and, and even the, the struggle that we might have with sin, but I'm, we're, going to, we're going to go back as Paul does. and This is who we are without Jesus. So that we would be driven to see our need of Jesus, our, our absolute need of Jesus and the cross of Christ. And so we have in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? And this this connects back to earlier in chapter three, where, you know, chapter two, he said the Jews break the law of God. And then in chapter three, he begins. Well, what's the the point of being an Israelite, of being Jewish? He says, well, you know, there are some some good things. We we do have the oracles of God. We do have the word of God. But then he then he returns our focus again, as it were, to, to say, but does that make us any better off? Remember those that were prideful in chapter 2 that were self-righteous? Paul's returning to that. Are we any better? And then he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. This, this really gets you to what, everything that we have been driving at from chapter 1, verse 18. Paul has talked a lot about sin. And then in chapter 2, he focused particularly on sins that are self-righteous, of, of thinking that we're okay, but actually breaking God's law. All of it to drive us to say everyone is under sin. Sin is an enslaving power. Sin has its boot on our neck, so to speak. And we cannot get out from under it on our own. In fact, in Romans 6, 6, Paul uses that language of enslavement. He says this of the believer, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What does that imply? What is that making the case for then that we were enslaved to sin? This is what Paul means in verse nine when he says both Jew and Greek are under Sin. How bad is it? Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all dead in sin. We are all enslaved to sin. We cannot 
get ourselves out from under it. And we do not often recognize the pervasiveness of sin. That it permeates every aspect of, of who we are, just as if I had a glass of water and, and dropped a, a little drop of poison in it. You might say, well, that's not very much poison, but it would pervade, it would flow through the whole glass. And I'm sure none of you would want to come up here and say, well, if I just drink a little bit of water, maybe I can kind of drink around the poison. No, the poison has moved through. It has tainted everything. And so it is with our sin. And so often we are, compare ourselves to other people and we say, well, my sin isn't bad like them. But sin is pervasive in our lives. And when we compare ourselves to the holy God that we just sang to, our sin is horrible. And we need to see that. And the goal of seeing that is not to to make you feel bad, per se, not to just stand up here and and kick you when you're down, so to speak. But the goal of seeing that is to say, come to Jesus Christ, know his sweetness. So apart from Jesus Christ, we are all dead in our sins. First, without Jesus, we do not know God or seek God. This is how bad sin is. We don't understand God. We don't want the ways of God. We do not seek His face. It's not that we're out there basically looking for Him, trying to live the good life. It's no, we are out there actively rebelling against Him in our sinfulness. So, Paul says that no one is righteous. Verse 10, and as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Paul is quoting probably from Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, but also this first line may be an allusion to Ecclesiastes 7.20, which says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth, at one who does good and never sins. There is no person anywhere who lives ethically before God. No one possesses in and of themselves the the quality and the character that it takes to stand before a perfect, holy and righteous God. You'll remember how how in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to drive them out of that garden, that that picture of fellowship, because they were no longer innocent. They were sinners And one of the things about sin is that it separates us from the goodness of God. It keeps us from the blessings that God would have for us for knowing him. And so sin brings a curse. Nobody, though, no one, not one, Paul says, is righteous. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, Paul is saying. It doesn't matter if you were a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a good home. It doesn't matter if you came from a really bad life. Each one of us has has a monster inside of us called sin. And we live in this rebellion against God. and, And the worst of it is we like it. When we're in our sin, in sin, we do not understand or seek God. Look at verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We don't have the capacity in 
our sinfulness to know God, to understand Him. We are, we are another biblical image. We are, are blinded by sin. Blinded by it. Can I see the light of God if I am blind? Can I see anything if I am blind? No. We don't understand God, nor do we want to. We're not seeking Him. We're not looking for Him. We're not able to to rise of our own ability and say, I want God because I see now. We don't have the desire. We don't have the power. We are under the enslaving authority of sin. We are under it. And Martin Luther says here, God looks down from heaven and does not see even one who attempts to seek after him. And that's a great little book from The Bondage of the Will. You'll remember Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We walked away from God and abandoned Him in our sinfulness. And we cannot just turn and come back to Him. We need Him to rescue us through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says this, For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It, it doesn't say there, the mind set on the flesh doesn't quite like God. It doesn't say, the mind set on the flesh sort of, maybe, doesn't always want God. Hostile. Rebellion. Fighting. It's like being an insurgent in war when all you want to do is strike out and lash out at the enemy. It doesn't matter if you have tactics. It doesn't matter if you have a larger plan. It doesn't even matter if you can really win the battle. We are so filled with hostility. Again, much like insurgents in some of the wars that we fight in our day and age, that all we want to do is strike out at God. Just as fighters today, all they want to do is kill people. That is who we are. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. I am so tainted and corrupted by my sin that not only do I not want God, but I cannot have God. I cannot get him. I cannot reach out of my own ability and say, I need you. I want to seek your face now. It says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh and in the flesh, again, is talking about in our sinfulness and in, in the pervasity of our sin. It says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so I take it to say in Romans 8.8, 8, it says, we cannot please God. We cannot do anything. We're fast bound by sin. In chains, if you were. Blinded. All of these images begin to come together to say, in my sinful state, I am so enslaved to sin. That I cannot do the things that God would have me to do for a right relationship with Him. 
And the worst part of it is, in my sin, I don't see a problem. In my sin, I don't see a problem. And I'm certainly not going to turn to God in my sin. I'm certainly not going to seek His faith. There's nothing wrong with me, I say. I need God to redeem me from my active rebellion. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person. This is the person without God in their heart, without the Spirit of God working in them. Who we are in and of ourselves. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. Back to this idea that no one understands God. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We think the ways of God are foolish in our sin. We don't have the ability to turn to Him. God has to come to us. Not only this, but we are living in rebellion against God. Back to Romans chapter 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You think of yourself, you know, driving down the road. What does it mean to, to turn aside? You, you get out of the way. You, you steer clear. If, if this is the way to God, we, we turn aside. We take a different route. We say, I don't want this. We steer clear of God. We're not driving along in our sinful state saying, well, if only someone would point me back to God, I would just make that turn. We're saying, oh, there's God. Zoom, I'm going the other way. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. We are all, without Christ, we are all under this power and corruption of sin. And some of you might be thinking at this point, well, pastor, is it, is it really that bad? I know unbelievers, you might say to yourself, who, who from time to time do good things. I know unbelievers who from time to time, they seem kind of interested when I talk about God a little bit. They don't seem as bad as you're trying to, to make it out. A couple things. One, if there's anything in anyone where they're looking like they're turning to God, it's probably a work of the Holy Spirit. The other thing is that it could be is sometimes we convince ourselves that we want things that we don't really want. Sometimes we don't want the real and true living God, but we want a, a God made in our own image. Why is it that there are so many other religions out there? Why is it that there are so many other ways to God? And I put that in air quotes to say there are so many ways that people think there are to get to God. Because we don't want the living and true way in Jesus Christ. And so we, we make up excuses. And there are people out there that, that pretend to be looking for God, but they're, they're really looking for what they want to hear. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I have. You talk to someone who seems a little interested in God, and you think, this is great. This is awesome. And then you say to them, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
and need Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And they shut down. They wanted God. Air quotes. But when they heard who he was, they said, not not that God. Not that one. Why do people, even non-Christians, do good things? One, because God restrains sin. Two, because they still have a conscience in them. And three, do they do it out of a love for God? A genuine love. We can do things that are good to our neighbor, but do them out of selfish motives. And what Paul is driving at. And, and you can even you know, look, at, look at the New Testament and, and think about the Pharisees for a minute. If anybody thought that they were good people, it was the Pharisees. Now, we know what what Jesus says about them. And we kind of if you were raised in the church, you know, uh, the minute someone says Pharisee, you go, "Ooh, those are the bad guys. But but think about it from their perspective. Think about it from being in that day in those shoes. Those were the good people. Did they do their goodness out of a genuine love for God? Was it untainted by sin? The same is true in our day and age. Again, we need to realize how bad we really are, because if we don't, we will not know the sweetness of Jesus Christ. When we don't talk about sin, we don't know the riches of the grace of God. Martin Luther, again, in his bondage of the will, says Paul's whole aim is to make grace necessary to all men. And if they could initiate something in themselves, they would not need grace by making sin sin. We are also painting a picture and saying this is what grace is. This is what God has saved us from in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the diagnosis, you aren't going to know how sweet the riches of the love of God are to us in Christ Jesus. Let me give you an example. How many of you have watched the movie The Princess Bride? And if parents, if you haven't shown that to your kids, shame on you for not raising them in the classics. Uh, Just kidding. Um, Billy Crystal in that movie plays a character, Miracle Max. Remember when they bring uh, the hero in, they bring in Wesley and and he's he's dead and they need a miracle. They need you to bring him back from the dead. And remember, Miracle Max takes that that giant air pusher thingy and he he pushes air into him. And and and, um, actually, before he does that, he he looks at them and he says to the two guys, uh, Vicinius and, and one of the other guys, he says he's not dead He's what? Mostly dead. Mostly dead. What is mostly dead? I, I don't know. It's, it's a fun little movie, but, but there, you're either dead or you're alive. There is no mostly dead. But here's the thing. Many of us think that when it comes to, to our sinfulness, when it comes to who we are without Christ, we don't think that we're dead in sin, as the Bible says. How many dead people can come back to life in and of themselves? How many dead people do you know that have the strength and the ability to reach up and grab life? We often think that we're mostly dead. That if God just helps me a little bit, 
all I, all I sort of need is a little push, if you will. And I can seek God and I can understand God because I'm mostly dead. Sin is bad, but it's not pervasive. The Bible says this, and you were dead in your sins. Not, not Miracle Max mostly dead. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked by the course of this world uh, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience amongst whom we all once lived. So, so dead there is a metaphor for living in sin. But you are living in it in such a way that it is pervasive in your life, that you have no spiritual drive or impetus in you. You have no heartbeat. And, and we cannot bring you back to life like Miracle Max. We have to, we have to get out the shock paddles and, and stick them to your chest. God has to impart spiritual life to you. But God, being rich in mercy, what? Made us alive in Jesus Christ. I love my some of you know this already, but but my favorite hymn is Charles Wesley's and can it be and can it be and and you have to sing at least the four verses that you have in the hymn book. Apparently, there are actually more than four verses. I did not know that until yesterday. But but when we sing it, I think you always have to move through the verses and you cannot skip what what I think is. I think it's the third verse. It says this long. My imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I went forth and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I went forth and followed me. You have to sing that with a picture in your mind. Under sin. In a a dark, damp, smelly, stinky dungeon with your arms chained to the wall. With with no light. If someone were to, to stand at the gate and just say, well, come on out. I can't do it. You need God to rain down that light. And He does that through the preaching of the Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth. And followed thee. I made a profession of faith. I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he opened my eyes and I finally saw it. Remember the Saturday Night Live character? I forget who played the part. But the character would always say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, I like me. That's how we often think we are when it comes to us coming to Christ. I was good enough. I, I saw these things. I was, I was smart enough. Someone explained the gospel to me and I understood it. Someone explained the gospel to you. And the Holy Spirit flamed with light. 
And you believed. And it was an act of your faith. You trusted in Christ. But who gets all the credit? God. Because you were under sin. And God opened your eyes. And He moved you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sins. Second, this morning, without Jesus, we do not truly love others. And so as we go through this passage, Paul says other things about our sinfulness. Our sinfulness is illustrated by the vileness of our speech. Verse 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They do not use their tongues or excuse me. They use their tongues to deceive their the venom of asps is on their lips. And you can just picture the snake dripping its venom. People that want to say things to you, attack you. This is who we are in our sinfulness. Their mouth is is full of curses and bitterness I think that this is this is one of those sins we can we can all identify with if we're if we're really honest with ourselves. We can all identify with uh, losing our temper, saying something that we regret, lashing out uh, with our words. Maybe even you still struggle with this as a Christian. I can think of a time in my life, actually, as a young boy, I can I can vaguely remember Lying to my parents. But I can, you know what's really awful about it? I can remember, I don't remember exactly when it was, but at least one particular occasion where I was really proud. I was smart. I got one over on my parents. That just felt really good. But you think about it. I lied. And it's so easy to look at these verses and say, well, you know, my my throat isn't an open grave. Thank God I'm not that bad, Pastor Tim. But you look at, do you ever say anything that you regret? Have you ever lashed out? Have you ever just maybe even driving in traffic and someone cuts you off and you curse at them? Come on, I I know, you know, there's got to be people here that do that. I I won't comment on whether or not, you know, I've... The tongue, though, you know, it's so easy to look at sins and say, well, thank God I'm not a murderer. Well, thank God I've not stole things. Well, thank God I've never done this or that. You know, we again, we always compare ourselves to other people. Thank goodness I'm not Hitler. There's a guy that really deserves to go to hell. But me, eh, not so much. But then you look at your tongue, you look at your mouth. And what does James say? And so also the tongue is a is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How a great forest is set ablaze by such small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among other members. So you, you just, you know, picture how small is the tongue compared to other things on your body. But how much damage can be done by losing your cool and speaking something you regret. It says, staining the whole body, James says, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Even birds and beasts, uh, beasts and birds of reptiles and sea creatures can be tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. You ever see one of those shows at SeaWorld? You ever see the great giant killer whales? We can tame those things. I'm, I'm not saying it's necessarily great to keep them in t- captivity, but, but man, we can teach them tricks. 
but you can't tame the tongue. How small is my tongue compared to the giant whale? And no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poisons. And with it, we bless the Lord and our Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Jesus says of the Pharisees, for out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. The the, the tongue is like a window to the soul. It's it's like a a barometer that goes deep down into the, the core of who you are. And so we can look really good on the outside. We can clean up our lives. We can be good moral people. We can be feeding our neighbor and taking care of the poor. But the tongue, the tongue will reveal who we really are. Can't hide from the tongue. So as this language is, their throat is an open grave, their tongues to deceive, the the venom of asps is on their lips. I would encourage you to think about yourself and say, how pervasive was my sin? And And if this is my sin, just what is this saying about the depths of sin in my heart? We, we tend to think of ourselves like, you know, sin is something that I have up here and maybe on the outside of my life up here, but, but down here in my heart. What, what do we tell ourselves in the world today? We're basically what? Good people. But if the tongue goes to the root of who we are, what does the tongue say about people? Just look at the world around us. Just just get on Twitter for 10 minutes. What does the tongue say about people? What does it say about me? My sin really is bad. Not only this, but sin unchecked leads to violence. Verses 15, 16, and 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. It does not take someone long To go from breathing threats with their mouth, with their tongue, to actually acting them out. We might not all be murderers. We might not all go out and put on the bloody knuckles and walk down the street looking for a fight. But we all have anger. And it flows out of the mouth and out of the tongue. And I'm sure you've had experiences where you have lost your cool. And you just wanted to... This is who we are. And honestly, the only reason that our world around us isn't more filled with violence is because God in his graciousness restrains evil. The question we often, you know, we often think in terms of how can good people do such bad things? Bad is the default. How can bad people from time to time actually occasionally do something nice for someone else? It's not goodness that they do in the eyes of God, but it is can be towards fellow man. And the answer is God often restrains evil. Sin is bad. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God. Before their eyes in our sin, we have no fear.
fear of God. We don't care. We, we hear that God judges sin. We hear that we are sinners and we're like, ah, who's this God guy? Who does he think he is? I'm not scared of him. And we don't care. Why does the sinner not turn to God when they hear about their sin? Because they don't think there's a God who's going to judge them. We don't think that in and of ourselves, we don't think that sin is really that bad. We, we grade ourselves on a curve. And we say, well, I'll just rack up some extra credit. And I know I've done some bad things, but if my extra credit bumps it up, I'll be good. But we don't fear a holy God who punishes and judges all sin. And no one who is unrighteous, no one who has any sin in their life can stand before somebody with that, with his immensity of goodness. It would be unjust and unfair and unrighteous for God to let people get away with sin. We think oftentimes that, that it, it, it's mean that God is so holy. It is good that God is holy. God in His righteousness is perfect and infinite and, and, and the world would, would fly apart at the seams, so to speak, if God broke His character of righteousness. If God just graded on a curve and let innocent people get away with things, and oh, that's fine, whatever. Oh, the world would be a mess. Did you ever get mad at your parents because they let your sibling get off the hook for something and they didn't let you get off the hook for something? And in that moment, you just, oh, that's not fair. That's unfair. Just now I'm going to set aside that, you know, your parents may have been showing grace, but just that idea of it's not fair when righteousness is perverted. It would not be fair and according to the character of God, if he did not judge sin for all that it is. And yet in our sin, we do not Fear God. I remember when I got my driver's license, my dad put a little bit of fear in me. When I got my license, we lived on the island of Guam and we were missionaries out there. And, and I joked that there are only so many roads you can drive on on Guam because it's an island. So we were, we, I got my license and I was going to go out for the night. And he said to me something to the effect of, if I ever catch you driving recklessly, I will yank your chain back in so fast you did not know what happened. Then he said something to the effect of, and if I hear that you were driving recklessly, because I have eyes everywhere. I was always afraid there was going to be some missionary friend of ours driving on the same road, going the opposite direction, passing me and going, is that Tim Bertolette's car? Does his dad know how he's driving? It put a little bit of healthy fear in me. But when you don't have fear, you just say, well, hey, I'll drive however I want. And when you have no fear of God in your eyes, you say, Phew! 
What is sin? What does it matter? Who cares? And so in Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2, transgressors, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Transgression deep in the heart speaking to us. Do these things. You can get away with it. And that says there is no fear of God in their eyes. Then it says in verse two, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. I think of someone batting their eyes when, you know, like, like when they flirt with you, you know, the flattery that they, they bring. They, you flatter yourself with their own eyes. No one's going to find out that I did these things. There is no fear of God, no sense of his pervasiveness, no, no sense of like my dad said, my eyes are everywhere. Now, my dad wasn't omnipresent, but God is. And your sin will find you out. And this is who we are in our sin, thinking I can get away with it. Oh, that we would see who Jesus is. That we would see the, the enslaving power, the, the badness of sin, the, the wickedness of it. When you get sick, if the cold is minor, you just pop some vitamin C pills. You lay down maybe if you can and rest a little bit. You take care of yourself and you say, it will get better because it's not that bad. We are not just a little bit sick in our sin. We are dead. And the ambulance needs to be called. And the doctor needs to give you CPR and bring you back to life. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to pay for this sin. And then send the Holy Spirit to to open your eyes so that you might see it, to impart grace and new life to you. That's how bad it is. But that's the cure. Only the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ can come and revive us when we are dead in our sins. And we need the preaching of Jesus Christ. We need him to send the Holy Spirit. We need him to shine darkness, light into the darkness. The bottom line is we need God. We need God to act. And we live in a culture in a day and age where even in the church, grace doesn't mean grace because we don't think we're that bad. And when we understand the depths of sin and just how bad it is, oh my goodness, grace is refreshing. It is like water poured onto our souls that God would forgive and save me. He didn't forgive me and save me because I was a little bit bad. He did not look at me and say, you're basically a good person trying and I will come down and help you. We didn't want God. We rebelled at him, shaking our fists. And the Bible says God loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, while all of these things were true of us, Christ died for us. And in the preaching of the word, 
And when you share the gospel with someone, you beg the Holy Spirit to work. And when the Holy Spirit works, God saves sinners. That is the hope of the Christian faith. Not that we can save ourselves. Not that we can reach up and and grab God. Now, we need to trust in Christ. But the hope of, of Christianity, of the Bible, is this. That God saves sinners. And what did I do to get saved? Nothing. God saves me. Now, He uses faith. Faith is the means by which we draw near. But faith is not something I bring to God and and make a bargain with Him. If I do this for you, God, will you do this for me? When I come in faith, I say, I have nothing but my wretchedness. And I trust what Jesus did in dying on the cross. Without Jesus, and this is our third this morning, without Jesus, no one can ever be justified before God. So now we turn our attention to the law of God. Verse 19. And we now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul is speaking to people that still thought, well, we have the law, so all we have to do is just try to obey God a little bit. And let me ask you this. Can the person described in verses 9 through 18 just obey God a little bit? Just try a little harder to keep God's commands, His law. No. Sin is so bad. What is the purpose of the law then? It shows us sin. If you feel today like you have just been blinded by a spotlight, deer in the headlights kind of moment. The Holy Spirit is using the law of God to drive you to Jesus Christ. But the law, the the commands don't save. The grace saves. But the commands expose just how bad it is. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that the whole mouth, every mouth may be stopped and the world may be held accountable to God. Our mouths are stopped. We we say, well, I'm not that bad. And scripture shuts that down. We say, well, well, people are basically good. And, And scripture says lies, wicked lies. It's not true. Think of it this way. The law of God is God dropping the mic on the human condition. You know that phrase, drop the mic, where nobody can say anything back, where it's the the final word. The law of God is God dropping the mic on the human condition. We really are bad. And then it says in verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What is the law? The law is, you know, you might think of the Old Testament, the Bible. You think specifically of the commandments. Things that God says that we should do, that we should do, that are good, that are true, that are right. In the Old Testament, we also have the ceremonial law, but but particularly you have aspects of the moral law. The Ten Commandments. 
works of the law are just doing things that are in obedience to God's commands. Works of the law are, are a good thing in the sense that we should try to obey God. But here, by works of the law, by obeying God, we are never justified before God. You are never going to be able to stand before God and say to God, I obeyed you. Let me into heaven. I obeyed you. I tried. I may not have been perfect, but, but I really, my heart was in the right place and I tried hard to keep your commands. I was a good person. You will not pass the bar of God's judgment. You will not be justified if that's what you rely on to get to heaven. If that's what you're relying on to save you from sin. If you are thinking, I will just clean up my life a little bit and things will go well and I will know God and I will go to heaven. I will be regular at church and bring my Bible. I will tithe and I will teach Sunday school. And when I die, God will say, you did good things for me. Come into heaven. We will never get there that way. No one can be justified, can stand before God and hear the words, you are righteous, come into my presence. You will never get there because no one is righteous. No, not one. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. Isaiah 59, 2 says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Based on your life, based on even if you try to do good things, sin is still corrupting you. You are still under its power and its authority. It is your master. You will never get out from your chains if you, if you just try harder. Imagine being chained to the wall with, with thick inch steel brackets and, and giant pins cemented into the wall. And you can spend your entire life tugging against those things and you will never get free. You can spend your entire life trying to keep every single one of God's commands. You can even start trying to keep the food laws. You know, no more shrimp for you. And you will never get to a level of perfection that makes you holy in God's sight. You and I need Jesus. Our only hope to stand before God and hear the words, you're righteous, come into my presence, is to, the only hope, the only way to have that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that he rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death. If we trust in him, we find the forgiveness of sins. This is what Paul is driving us to. Grace. 
the riches of the grace of God. Romans 3, 23 and 24. We'll get here next week. For all have sinned. That's, that's really what we did today, right? For all have sinned. But for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you're saying, man, the pastor really laid it on hard. Maybe you're a little bit angry. Maybe you're even a little bit, how dare the pastor say we're really that bad. I'm that bad too. That's my sin too. But let me say this. The point is to drive you to Jesus Christ. One, this is what Jesus says about our sins. This is what God says. I've tried to be really careful just to read the words that Scripture says. But second, flee to Jesus Christ. Rather than than getting enraged and saying, how dare you say my sin is really that bad? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you and let it sink into your heart to say it really is that bad. But but pastor is saying this because he loves you and he wants you to flee to Jesus Christ, to go before him and acknowledge your sin. If you're a believer, I hope that you find these things not discouraging but encouraging. No one likes going to the doctor and getting a bad diagnosis. But the point of diagnosing the problem is so you can write the prescription. And a proper diagnosis will lead to a proper prescription. A proper diagnosis of sin is to lead you to the proper prescription. And you need to say, to we need to, you know, a lot of people believe Jesus saves. But do we believe that only Jesus saves? A lot of people believe that salvation is found in God and Jesus. But do we believe that Jesus alone saves? We need to get those words back. Only Jesus. Jesus alone. We sing this hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Today, we spent our time tearing down that human frame that we often rely on, that we often think we can do these things in and of ourselves so that we might come back to Jesus and say, I dare not trust myself, the sweetest frame, the nicest person, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray this morning. Our great